everyone. You're listening to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. I'm Meredith Carey, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Lala Ericoglu. Hello. This week, we're so excited to be joined by author and musician Michelle Zahner, also known as Japanese Breakfast. Her latest album comes out at the start of the summer, but today she's here to talk about Crying in H Mart, her new must-read memoir about family, identity, travel, food, love, and grief over the loss of her mother to cancer in 2014. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So both of us have torn through the book and it is really beautiful. And as Meredith said, she just listed off like a sort of grocery list of thing, topics that we want to talk about. But I want to start with, you know, there are many parts in the book where you look back on your childhood trips to Korea with your mum. How do you think those experiences shaped you as you were growing up? I think they shaped to me quite a great deal, especially because, um, you know, I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, which is a sort of smaller town in the Pacific Northwest. And I also was raised largely kind of outside of town in a house in the woods uh, as an only child without many sort of neighboring children. I had a very kind of lonely childhood. So going to Seoul was such an exciting experience for me, not just because it's like, you know, such a different world to travel to Asia as a young kid, but um, or even as an adult, but also just being in like an urban environment was like such an exciting thing for me. And I think it like granted me with a certain type of courageousness that like traveling was never really, you know, a lot of families like traveling is uh, kind of like a foreign, scary thing. And it was always like a very normalized thing in, in my household. You know, we've talked about on the podcast before that like traveling to visit your family is often different than traveling for vacation. Like how did that play out in how you traveled as a kid? You know, I, I think that like, like some people who haven't traveled very often, like will, will become like a different person when they travel in this way where they'll like do very normal things they would never do in their home country. Suddenly like it gets a weird free pass when they like don't speak the language somewhere. I, I don't know. I feel like there's like so much like frantic anxiety that can come with travel that I felt having grown up like visiting a foreign country essentially every other summer, I've, it felt very natural to me. Um, so it was never like an intimidating thing to do. And I feel like I was just able to be very open to new cultural experiences and not like alarmed by them. Like, you know, I know some people with a lot of anxiety about traveling to places where they don't speak the language. And, you know, I, I've always felt this like sort of semi belonging to the place to a place in which I like don't even speak the language because I had so much family there and it just felt inherently a part of me uh, that that was never, you know, an anxiety inducing experience for me. I say this from experience because my dad's Turkish, but it's a sort of funny perk of having a parent that is from a different country from the one that you're raised in because you do just get this door opened for you to this whole other country and set of experiences. And I mean, at least for me as a kid, I didn't actually kind of realise how great that was until way after the fact. Do you think you were kind of aware of how exciting it was when, when those trips were taking place? I definitely found them to be truly delightful. I really loved getting the opportunity to visit my family and I loved my family so much. And I loved Korea. Um, but I don't think I realized how lucky I was, especially as like a Korean American kid. Like now that I have spoken to a lot more, uh, Korean American people, I realized that, you know, that's a real luxury to get to go to, you know, Asia every other summer. It's, it's pretty, you know, expensive trip. And even a lot of like full Korean people don't get to do that so often. So I'm really lucky that I got to have that experience. And, uh, you know, I think I appreciated it as a kid, but not, not to the full extent that I, that I do now. 
You write in the book so fondly about what you did and what you ate and who you were with when you were on these trips. What do you feel like those trips or even just being in Korea for the amount of time that you were there, what do you feel like it gave you that you weren't able to find in rural Eugene? <laughs> I mean, there was definitely, you know, a very tight knit family of women. Uh, I felt very coddled there <laughs> um, in, in a way that was so exciting for me. You know, I grew up in a house in the woods with like five acres and like my bedroom was on the second floor. So like, you know, I had an entire floor that I never like saw, I could like not see anyone. And if my parents were leaving me alone, I was like really left to my own devices. And then in Korea, I would stay in a three bedroom apartment with, you know, my grandmother and my two aunts and my cousin who had a little sort of closet room. And then my mom and my, my mom and I would, um, sleep on a futon in the living room. And I just loved being around all of those women. And like, I come from such a small family as just my mom and my dad and my, and myself. And, uh, so just being like with a tight knit family that had a larger number of people in, in close quarters was just like so exciting for me. Um, and of course, because we were guests there, we were like guests, but we were family. So we got treated like so, <laughs> so well, you know, we were always getting whisked away to like new restaurants and like trying new things, you know, they were there, they were, <laughs> they felt a real responsibility to like entertain us. And especially as a young kid, you know, I had my cousin who was only a few years older than me that would like take me to the stationery store, like to the arcade and, uh, my, my, you know, I was just very doted on in this way that, um, you know, any kid would have, have adored at that, that age. One thing that really comes across in the book and through kind of your other writing is how much food really w was a connective tissue between you and your mother. And also it seems your whole family. Was it a conscious effort to weave so much of that food writing into the book? And I guess kind of like... Did the memoir come first or did the food come first? <laughs> so I always knew that um, food was going to be a major thematic vehicle for the book. The book started largely in 2016. I guess like the sort of seed of the idea was, um, you know, this very obviously real experience that I had where um, I was working as a sales assistant for an advertising company. And I was like, just really unsatisfied. And, you know, I would get home at like 8, 8 PM. And even though I'd been working all day, just felt like I didn't do anything at all. And so, you know, I'd never written nonfiction before. And I was having this experience with this like YouTube vlogger named Mangchi. And I just thought it was a really cute story. You know, it was like a Korean Julie and Julia kind of situation. And you know, the only thing that was like giving me real joy during this time was like I would go to Flushing to buy my Korean groceries at H Mart, you know, maybe once a week. And then I would watch a new Mangchi YouTube video. And it was just like a, a great comfort to me. And I wanted to just like write like an ode to this woman who I just never met and had come to mean so much to me. And um, I submitted that essay to like a bunch of food blogs and um, every every um writing contest without an entry fee and no one wanted it for like nine months. And, and then eventually I got an email from Glamour magazine that I had won their essay of the year for 2016. Um, but then, you know, to get in the magazine, like you had to, they had to like cut like a good, you know, maybe two thirds of it or something to fit. 
And that was the sort of first feeling that like that there was a lot more to say there, that there was this whole like, you know, six months of my life in which like so much had happened. And I really wanted to get into that and kind of that had sort of opened the door. Um, and then around that time, my first record, Psychopomp, started to really take off and the band got to go on tour for two years. And um, we had six, you know, I, I scheduled six weeks off in Seoul after the tour was over. And I kind of casually but very seriously spent six weeks uh, writing out like what I what, you know, an outline of a book could look like. And, and it was always going to be. Uh, sort of like my memories of food, my childhood memories of food and and kind of, you know, the first line of the book is ever since my mom died, I cry in H Mart. That was like pretty early on, I think. And I think I just set out to ask the question why, you know, like why did why do I cry in this grocery store? Why has it come to mean so much to me? Why did I gravitate towards food? And then uh, the rest of the book is just kind of investigating all the different reasons um, that might have happened. And some of that is, you know, this childhood that was like very rich with food and growing up with two cultures and getting to visit and travel to Korea and eat all the great things over there. And, you know, also like establishing myself pretty early on as like an adventurous eater. And then there was also this part of the book where, you know, I felt really confronted by this woman who came to live with us and kind of barred me from the kitchen in a way, like kind of like made me sort of question if I really did know that much about Korean food or Korean culture, if I really did fit in this place that I always felt like I sort of inherently belonged in a way. And I think that psychologically, there was this sense of like undoing the kind of failures that I, I felt as, as a caretaker that I wasn't able to kind of be, be the person who was able to prepare the dishes that my mom really needed the way that this woman could. And so I, I think that that was sort of what I was, what I was investigating was like, um, is that I think that all of those are kind of different reasons why I sort of turned to, to Korean cooking in a way. And so I always knew that it was going to be a really big part of the book. When you were taking your first trips with your mom, is there any food that you really remember loving from those first trips when you were a kid? Yeah. I, the dish that comes to mind first is, you know, whenever we would land in Korea and then we would drive like, you know, sometimes I think two hours in traffic from Incheon uh, Airport, we would get into my aunt's apartment and they would call, they would always call for like this Chinese Korean, um, delivery, which is, uh, you know, really big delivery food item there. And, um, jajangmyeon is like my, it's like these black bean noodles that are just like super savory and like really, you know, there's like pork and lots of onions and like these, uh, noodles. And, uh, we would get that and tangsuyuk, which is like basically like a sweet and sour sort of fried battered pork. And every time we got in, it was like my aunt would call and then within like 10 minutes, there would be a delivery man that came up and like dropped off these noodles. And like, that was my favorite thing to eat growing up. Cause like even here, like it never tastes like, you know, there's something in the water where it's just like, it never tastes the same that, as it does there. So that is definitely the first one that comes to mind. So when you go back to Korea for the first time after the pandemic, do you think that's what you'll want to order first? Probably. What do I, you know what? I've actually, as an adult, what I come to love and like is, is kangjang kejang, which is like this fermented soy sauce, raw crab. And that's another thing that I just can't get here. And it's, it's just, I could eat that every day. It is the most like luxurious, like perversely good food. It has this like sort of like 
custardy, almost briny quality that um, like uni has. And I love like cracking into like the shell and like sucking out this like uh, raw meat. It's so good. Um, and yeah, that was something I don't think I was super into as a, a young kid when I visited Korea, but it's something I'm super into now that I, I, I can't wait to eat again. Food can be such a comfort in times of stress and grief, which the last year has been filled with. Uh, what foods have you been turning to, either making or ordering during the pandemic? Um, I mean, I certainly make Korean food still, and it's changed, you know? I mean, we've lived like this for a full year now, and um, in the beginning... You know, there were a lot of like themed dinners. Uh, so it was like, I just like love a theme. So it'd be like going all out on like a Spanish top. Also because you were like, okay, what else is there to do? Like I have to uh, find joy where I can. Um, so we were like really, you know, making some decadent themed meals, like some like Mediterranean dips for a while and then like Spanish tapas and like I was trying like I cooked an octopus for the first time and then it sort of slowly turned into like I'm going to like just eat the like worst possible things and I've like <laughs> I'm never gonna get out of this and I might as well just completely indulge in like the worst things and I ate a lot of like really crappy, like just like devolved into this like processed food, like teenager of like, I feel like eating Eggo waffles and I deserve it. And I like, you know, just like eating a bunch of like crap, which was, you know, fine. It's not, it's not like a bad thing. But um, now I'm in this place where I'm like. I was like trying a bunch of like fad diets for a while. And I think it's because it like gave me this sense of like weird control. It was almost like this like specific like traumatic experience is very sacred to that moment of like making Korean food that now that I'm in this new crisis, I have to like do something else, you know? Uh, so I, I can't say that there there's a, a huge romantic narrative arc to my pandemic eating style. <laughs> I would be surprised if there was. <laughs> <laughs> Um, It'd be beautiful if I was like, I got really into like uh, Indian cooking or something. I did like <laughs> learn how to cook some Indian dishes. Like some of the things that, you know, in, especially in the beginning where it's like, you know, we can't, you know, it was like questionable if it was like morally corrupt to like get takeout for a while, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so it was stuff like that. It's like, oh, I really want Indian food, but I don't know if it's okay to order from here. I guess I'll just try to make it for the first time. Um, so I did have a couple of those types of experiences. I mean, cooking on octopuses is um, probably about a full marathon ahead of where I went with my, with my it's very pandemic nice. It's very visual as well yeah. when you say that. You know, kind of saying that what you were cooking didn't necessarily have the sort of romantic narrative that one might hope you'd get out of the, this pandemic life we've had to live. I think, you know, another thing that's um, been really difficult for lots of people is productivity and feeling and creativity too have you been able to write at all whether that's music or nonfiction or essays or whatever it was really tough for me because I I finished the book in July 2020 so I was like working on some revisions in the pandemic um, and then I finished this record in December 2019. So I had already kind of felt like I had been quarantining with these like huge projects that like when March came around, I was like, I'm ready to live my life now. And then it was like, no. <laughs> um, so it was tough because I felt like it was really hard for me to like 
create more like new projects like because it felt like these these ones weren't finished like I couldn't feel like I was ready to move on until these came out in a way I spent some time working on this like soundtrack for an indie game called Sable that's going to come out later this year and uh, I wrote some music for that and then you know I, I did mostly just smaller projects that were you know like I wrote an, an essay for Harper's Bazaar and um, I feel like that's all I have the capacity for right now, um, is, is these sorts of smaller projects. And maybe once these things come out, I can like feel good about, um, working on a, on another large project. But, um, I am also just excited to like live my life for a little bit and not <laughs> work on anything. And also like putting these two things out within a month of each other in 2021 is also an accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah. So I feel like I need that to happen before I like start and, and then to like just enjoy that for a little bit before I like think about it. But I haven't been to I wouldn't say that I've been for me, like I don't feel like I've been that creatively productive. I've certainly like done some things, but you know, when that's like your main job, it, it is like nerve wracking when it doesn't feel like you're busy doing your job all the time. You know, it was definitely really hard for me to, to stay creative during this time. Okay, so we talked in an episode a few weeks ago about how the pandemic has resurfaced a lot of like past experiences with grief for a lot of people. How has that affected you if it has? And how have you been kind of processing the last year? I don't know if that's really been the case for me. I think if anything, I've experienced this feeling of like, there goes a year of my life before. And I feel like that feels very similar to now. Like when my mom got sick, I, I lived in Eugene as a caretaker for six months. And then I stayed for six months after that, helping my dad kind of like get the house together and, and go through all the stuff that you have to go through when someone passes away. So I think that there's this certainly a sad, the same kind of sadness that I feel where it was like, you know, I lost, I mean, everyone feels that way in some way, no matter how old you are, really. I think that like high school kids probably feel like they lost a really essential period of their life getting to go to college this year or like, you know, in the same breath, like people in their 60s who were like so looking forward to like some of the last years they might have to travel um, were really devastated by this. You know, everyone has their own like major loss in this period of time. It's very sad that we lost this real like, you know, like a whole year of our lives in a way. And especially as people who are fans of travel, that's a big thing. So I feel like I just had that same you know, there was a similar type of grief where it was like, I know that this is part of what life is, is that like, you can't control, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with this, like, lack of control and this feeling that time is slipping away and that you have just like set aside of your, a year of your life to be lost. So if anything, I felt almost better equipped to handle something like this, because I, you know, it wasn't as I've been, you know, no one in my life died, luckily, um, this year. And, and uh, luckily, my family and my friends were we're all healthy. Um, so in the grand scheme of things, it didn't really trigger so much. If anything, I felt actually better prepared for in a way because I've, you know, dealt with disaster before that this kind of like didn't feel as, as severe to me almost because it didn't beyond, you know, the worst thing that happened to me was that I was like, you know, bored or whatever. <laughs> like, and I didn't get to like do my job. You know, I feel like as somebody who is probably used to traveling not only on tour but going and seeing family often not being able to travel this year felt weird what was being stuck in one place like and what does your first trip back to Korea look like who do you see where are you going 
Yeah, it was certainly really odd. I mean, it made me appreciate, you know, I, I really appreciated my job before, um, but it made me realize just how incredibly charmed of the last three years I really had. It, it's also just so wild to think of how much we did back then. <laughs> you know, it's like so different now. The idea of doing more than one thing is like bonkers. But um, if anything, I also like had to like really have a serious confrontation with like, who am I without my job? Um, and that was tough. Um, I, I guess I just tried to find small travel experiences and smaller travel, you know, going to like the like countryside or whatever, like the, to the, to the Adirondacks or like upstate or something, or like, you know, I, I'm not like a big outdoor person. Uh, and so I think maybe because I grew up like in a sort of woodsy, majestic Pacific Northwest area, like I just, um, the idea of hiking is like not particularly appealing to me. Um, but I tried to like kind of get more into that because it was like, what else are we going to do? I went like skiing for the first, there was a lot of like weird things that I did that I like never, you know, probably never would do. So yeah, I, I guess I just tried to like appreciate things on a, a smaller scale, you know, my first trip back, um, to Korea. I mean, I like have developed a really lovely relationship with my aunt, um, who's in the book and she's kind of my last, uh, relative there and, um, her and her husband, you know, my husband and I have like, it's, it's kind of nice, like, uh, to have this like sort of new relationship with them as adults, you know, because I feel like if I wasn't married, like it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't feel as much as balanced in a way. Like I would feel very, a little bit more like a burden, uh, to be looked after or something. And, and going there with my husband is really nice because like, it almost feels like my, my aunt and her husband and I are all just like going on a double date together. It's like, you know, so like, I would like to believe that they are also enjoying themselves too in this way that if it was just me, I would feel like they're like kind of like putting it on themselves to take me out. And I actually feel like we have been able to like go on little trips together where we just really enjoy each other's company. The last time that we were together, we went to Chunju, which is like uh, sort of in like, I think to the south of Seoul. And um, it's like really known for its food culture. Like it's the, like the best food is supposed to be in Jeonju. And we had like a really nice time, like staying in a Hanuk village, which is like a little, you know, old school, like cottage. And, um, we drank like this makgeolli from like a big, you know, copper pot that they like make there. And, uh, the food is really great. And, um, we had such a nice time. I would love to just do that again. I would love to visit like different parts of Korea. Like, cause I've, I've spent most of my time in Seoul and I've visited Busan and Jeju and Jeonju, but there's so much more of Seoul, of uh, South Korea that I would like to explore um, and appreciate now, I think. You touched on something that felt quite relatable and I thought was really interesting when you said that you've, you've had in the past year, you've had to come to terms with like who you are without your job. As we kind of look ahead into emerging out of this thing, do you think your relationship to your job and to your work will be different? Or do you think that you just want to fall right back into how it was before? I mean, to be completely honest and selfish, I want to fall right back into the way that it was before. Um, you know, like I, I don't really 
know if there's a whole lot I want to learn from this experience um, beyond just like appreciating even just the the grittiest uh, things that we have to do in order to make our job work. But, you know, I'm sure that it's, it's going to be super different. It's going to be like a really slow process, probably that I'm like so ready to just sort of jump into and get over. But, you know, I think that we've had to learn a tremendous amount of patience. And, and I guess I have to bring that into my new life. But I don't know. I mean, maybe that sounds like really immature and awful of me. I mean, I would love to be able to tell you, like, I've learned that I need to really slow down and like, I don't need to like, kill myself over this job anymore. But I am just like, so ready to go back into the way that things were like, (laughs) honestly, I love hearing that. I think I worry sometimes there's something a little bit disingenuous when you hear lots of people sort of saying how the past year has like, taught them so much or you know they now want to slow down and I'm like I don't know I just really missed my life before the pandemic I loved it (laughs) I think that's really real I want to say that too like I know that that's what people want from me is to be like no like one thing a day is enough um we all need to slow down uh but I don't know I I I actually just like want to go like so hard when I go I also I will say the one thing that I've learned is like I want to emerge from the pandemic wearing like very decadent outfits like all the time yes like I definitely want to like that's like one thing that I like wasn't important to me like pre-pandemic that's like definitely really important now I'm going to spend a lot more money on like clothing and being like just extra as fuck (laughs) it's yeah it's interesting and I've started doing my online shopping for the first time all year, I've started buying clothes again. And I'm like, this shows like a mental shift. Something, Something's <laughs> happening. Something that I have been investing my own money in because it is the thing that I want to get back to, despite the fact that like maybe it will trigger some level of like stress in a crowd. But I have bought four concert tickets. Oh, for wow. Four weeks in the same month. So wow. October is going to be wild. That's um, great. That's great how, to hear as a musician. I mean, as soon as people start putting them on sale, I'm like, so putting in my credit card information um, because I miss those experiences so much. Now that you have an album coming out, tour is looking like it's a thing that could happen. You have dates on your website, which is so exciting. What does preparing to get back out on the road look like and how does it feel? I'm like really trying to manage my expectations because like part of me is just Like one would not think this about me, but I actually realize that I cope with like major catastrophic stress with just like wild optimism. Like I just, uh, I have this entire time just like maintained like an uncomfortable amount of optimism that this is, you know, like it's going to be like great. And, um, I cannot stand like any negativity at all right now. I have a lot of people in my life and it's like, there's nothing that you can do because like their fears are valid and that's like how they're coping and that's fine. Can't handle it right now. I have muted so many family members and close friends because I cannot handle any negativity right now. Even if there's like a shred of truth in it, that being said, I have tried to like not just fully being like, yes, 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 or like going to be on tour. Like they think in late July. I don't know if that's like real or not. I am like at the point where it's like if they tell me that it's safe to do it, like I'm going to be doing it. 
Um, if they are saying they're not sure, then we'll pull out. Like we've definitely like canceled a lot. Of, everyone is used to things getting canceled at, at this point in time. And I think at this point they're just trying to be optimistic maybe. And like, you know, the vaccine rollout seems like pretty legit right now, but, um, yeah, that's what's on the, on the schedule now. And I, well, I think once we get closer to tour, it'll, it'll feel a lot realer. Uh, there'll be, you know, a lot of rehearsal. It's a lot of rehearsal. And like, one thing that's nice is we have all these like kind of live streams that we're preparing for. So we are slowly like getting to learn the album, um, and getting it prepped for if we do get to go out in a, in a, in sort of stages, whereas before it would have been maybe a little bit more of a rush to like learn all this new material. Is there anything that you miss about the travel aspect of touring that you're excited to get back to? Cause I know it's can be very hectic, but. Um, I honestly miss it all. I've come to just really love tour. And I, I, a part of it is like, I've gotten a really great group together that all like has made, has made it so efficient and, uh, such a loving, wonderful place. It's very much like, I feel very at home on, on the road with, with my sort of band family. And, um, I just miss feeling, uh, good at a job. You know, the older I get, like the more I realize like a human being's sense of purpose is so essential that I just, I miss like literally like carrying heavy gear into a building and like wrapping XLR cables and like setting up my pedal. I miss all of that stuff um, so much because it, it made me feel like, like I love like physical work. Like I love feeling like I am like working and doing something and that I know how to do something and I know how to do it well. And I've created this group that like loves their jobs and loves to like put in hard work. I don't know, that sounds really lame, but uh, I miss that feeling tremendously. I miss wandering around the gas station for a snack. I miss, you know, like getting to the hotel and like taking out my contacts or whatever. Like, uh, this next time might be really different because like we're supposed to be on a bus for the first time this year, which is wild. We've always been in a 15 passenger van and this would this would be the first year that we get to be on a tour bus. So I'm very excited to have that experience for the first time because I've never gotten to. And it just feels like beyond the realm of like all expectation for myself. I never thought I would be in a band that would be big enough to get to go on a tour bus. And so it feels really great to maybe get to do that this year it's gonna feel like first day back at school I imagine yeah it's gonna be so I'm sure that it's gonna be so awkward you know like can you imagine like you haven't socialized in like a year really and then all of a sudden you're in front of like a bunch of people <laughs> and like s sleeping on a tour bus <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally well Michelle thank you so much for joining us if people want to keep up with you and your book and your album where can they find you on social media they can find me at jbrecky, J-B-R-E-K-K-I-E on Twitter and Instagram. And my website is japanesebreakfast.rocks. Or I think we also own michelleshonor.com and uh, cryinginhmart.com. So uh, there are a number of ways. Or you could Google any of those things or my name and find me probably. Well, links to by Michelle's memoir, Crying in H Mart, which is out on April 20th, and pre-order Japanese Breakfast's latest album, Jubilee, which is out June 4th, will be in the show notes. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mare. Me at Lale Hannah. Be sure to follow Women Who Travel on Instagram and subscribe to our newsletter. We will have links to both those things also in the show notes, and we will talk to you next week. Bye.